Okay, hello friends. Due to a technical error, we were not able to capture the audio from this past Sunday's sermon. Uh, And so, for your benefit to continue the series uh, over this this recorded format and beyond, uh, I'm going to read my manuscript. And while it won't be the same as um, preaching to a a live congregation, um, my prayer is that this captured audio will serve you well um, as you listen to this series of sermons uh, in order with this being week number four, considering the, the love of God. And so with that, uh, I'm going to read my manuscript from beginning to end and, um, and pray that this blesses you. Aurelius Prudentius writes a great hymn that begins with this verse. Of the Father's love begotten, Ere the worlds began to be, he is the Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. I love this verse because it essentially attributes everything we know everything that has been and everything that will be to have at its source the love of the Father. It is as if to say, out of the abundance of the love of the Father in heaven that the world was spoken into existence. That that it is the love of God that is the source of everything that has been everything that is and everything that will be. I find that incredibly not only um, challenging and instructive, uh, but also pertinent, as this is traditionally week four of the Advent season, and it has this emphasis on love. The goal of the weeks of Advent is to set our minds on the coming of Christ, both his first arrival as the suffering servant and his second as the triumphant king. Thus far, we have considered promise, as in his promised return. We've considered preparation, God's preparation in eternity past, and our preparation of anticipating his return. We've considered peace, that is, the true peace, that only Jesus can bring through salvation. And now today, love, or specifically, passion. Now, as you might have noticed, each installment of the Advent series uses a P word to summarize its theme. Promise, preparation, peace, passion. And the last three installments will follow the same. So instead of love, we will speak of passion. But this isn't just a mild attempt at being clever with words on my part. When we think of the love God has for us, it is most clearly expressed in the personhood of Jesus, right? For God so loved the world, not that he created it, not that he will return to it, but specifically, the love of God is expressed in that he gave his only begotten son. It is as if Jesus is saying, he is the pinnacle of the expression of, of God's love. He gave his son. And as we continue to trace the line of what God's love, you might say, compelled him to do, we 
follow it through Jesus' humble incarnation, his perfection in life and obedience to the law, and finally, obedience to an unjust death on the cross, as First Peter expresses the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, if we're to think of Jesus' love for us, it is a fervent love. It is a devoted love. You might even say it is a passionate love. And as such, our minds are drawn to what is historically known as Passion Week, right? The final week of Jesus' life and ministry that culminates at the cross. He loved us passionately unto death. But the Passion and Passion Week is not a simple reference to the intensity of Jesus' love. Rather, it's a reference to his suffering. Passion Week and that reference comes from the Greek word pasco, which means to suffer. So it's not Passion Week as we might think of it in a dramatic human sense, passionate. He was so passionate about his church that he... No, it's passionate as in the Greek term meaning suffering, to suffer. If we are to set then our minds on Christ in this season of preparation called Advent, we cannot omit Christ's suffering in his first Advent. So promise, preparation, peace, and now passion. The question Christianity seeks to answer is this. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer in his first arrival? I want to say that again. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer in his first arrival? For the answer, we turn to the prophet Isaiah. And we'll look specifically this morning at a particular text from Isaiah 52 and the hidden chapter of Isaiah 53. But before we get there, we look to Isaiah chapter 6. Again, remembering we are seeking to answer the question, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer in his first arrival? Well, let's consider then the opening words of Isaiah chapter 6. In the first four verses, we read of a vision the prophet has, specifically of himself being transported, as it were, into the throne room of God. Allow me to read that for us, and we'll consider point number one. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with the two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, that is the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Well, to answer the question, why was it necessary for the Christ to suffer in his first arrival, we must consider, number one, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Isaiah gives a marker at the beginning of this text. In the year that King Uzziah died. This is more than a date. We must remember that Eastern authors often write deeper truths, coded messages, and allusions that require discernment. We cannot read an Eastern book with Western eyes. Well, King Uzziah's death is among these. It is not merely a year marker. It is meant to communicate a deeper truth. Or in this case, you might say, Uzziah's death foreshadows Isaiah's message. Consider this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we read that Uzziah was a good king who grew proud. The Hebrew word for pride is often translated as lifted up, as if to say, I am really something, aren't I? And this was the state of Uzziah's heart. I am really something, aren't I? He became, if you will, lifted up in his own eyes. Having enjoyed God's favor, he attributed his success to himself instead of God. He thought of his greatness as his own, not as a gift of a sovereign God. In that region, the other kings were not merely head of state, they were head of national religion as well. In Egypt, this was true of the Pharaoh, and in the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, this was true of the northern king, Jeroboam. Uzziah considered this and presumably thought to himself, Am I not as great a king as these? Should I not also be a priest king? Should I not also enter the sacred temple of my God? Should some priest tell me that there is a realm in my kingdom which is off limits to me? And so in his hubris, he entered the temple to burn incense and take his quote-unquote rightful place as priest king like those around him. The priests tried to stop him. The law forbade anyone to enter the holy place except the priests in the lineage of Aaron. And this with careful preparation. But Uzziah would not be deterred. The story reads that when Uzziah became angry with the priests who would dare restrain him from entering into the holy place any further, that immediately upon his anger with them, leprosy broke out on his forehead and he was rushed out of the sanctuary in a panic. He would live out his days from that day forward as a king in isolation, and the epitaph on his tomb read, He is a leper. Well, back to Isaiah chapter 6. What do we read? 
In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. It is as if Isaiah is intentionally contrasting the pretentious pride of Uzziah with the righteous glory of God. One was lifted up in his own eyes. The other, God, is truly lifted up, not proud, but elevated above all things. In fact, the idea is that the earth is merely a vessel to display his glory. This in comparison to a king who oversaw a speck of land and did so flawed. (laughs) Or you might say flawedly, whatever the terminology would be there. Isaiah continues saying that the seraphim, these angelic creatures, continually circle God's throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, the priests who ministered in the temple were to wear a headdress or we might call it a turban. Essentially, and and on it was to hang a gold medallion attached by a blue cord, almost like the turban is wearing a necklace. And on that gold medallion, the Hebrew words would be inscribed, Holy to the Lord. Now, if a man is wearing a turban, and on it sits a a corded medallion, where do you think that that medallion would hang? Well, if you're projecting and guessing at home right now, (laughs) you're right. That medallion would hang over his forehead. And where was Uzziah struck with leprosy? Interestingly, on his forehead. You might think that the Lord would strike him with leprosy in his hand, for he was holding the incense. That was a holy, sacred rite. So to make the point, his hand, the the agent that, that allows the action, might be struck with leprosy. Or maybe his feet which carried him, if you will, into the holy place, might be struck with leprosy. But God targets the forehead. This is no coincidence. At the sound of the praise of the seraphim, the heavens were shaken at their foundations, and the whole place is filled with smoke. This is a regular description of God's presence, a smoke-filled place. But I love the way Robert Godfrey teaches on the smoke of the temple. He says this, quote, Smoke is a mark of the glory of God. It is a mark, in a sense, of the hiddenness of God, the inapproachability of God, our inability to see God as he is in himself, end quote. This may also be an allusion to the smoke of the incense Uzziah attempted to offer in his pride. Either way, do we see the layers of contrast? Uzziah, prideful, lifted up in his own eyes. God, high and lifted up. Uzziah, struck on his forehead with leprosy. God, holy to the Lord, which should have been placed over his forehead. Uzziah offered incense presumptuously. God filled his temple with smoke, if you will, masking his appearance, making approach to his throne impossible. Well, this brings us to Isaiah's big point. 
in this series of contrasts, we are beginning to taste what a gross offense this was for Uzziah to commit. To enter the sacred place where God mercifully meets with mankind and to desecrate it with his pride, to mar its holiness. One of the more exhausting elements of Bible study is to read through the seemingly endless descriptions and regulations in Leviticus where God outlines proper worship. We can be tempted to pass, to, to skip past it, to, to skim over it. But each of these tedious lines communicate the severity of God's holiness. Every detail is a reminder to us that we have no proper instincts about worship. It is as though God intends to say to man, Beware, be careful, be mindful of how serious is the business of meeting with the holy God of all creation. Friends, there is joy in our worship to the Lord, but only because of his mercy. In mercy, God allows selfish, self-centered, rebellious creatures from the dirt, as R.C. Sproul would put it, <laughs> sinful creatures like you and me to approach his holiness. It's his mercy. Worship of a holy God is serious business. Now, why is it, though, why is worship of a holy God such serious, and you might even say dangerous business, as we see in the case of Uzziah? Well, that's because of number two, the sinfulness of man. We see the holiness of God. Next in Isaiah's account, we are reminded of the sinfulness of man. Isaiah makes what is a famous phrase next. He says, woe is me. He pronounced a curse on himself. He saw the king. My eyes have seen the king. See, Isaiah gets it. He is overwhelmed. He is undone. He, he realizes who he is. He is humbled in the temple of God. Uzziah said, I deserve to be in the holy place. Isaiah says, I cannot be here and survive the holiness of God. Why? Well, because he is sinful. And how does he express this sinfulness? He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Now, Bible students, do you remember what the leper was to cry out when walking through city streets and towns. Unclean, unclean. Isaiah was in effect saying, I am just like Uzziah. I am unclean. I am a leper. My lips cannot offer praise to God. They are leprous. In the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah became keenly aware of his sinfulness. Uzziah had to be shown this. He was proud. Isaiah knew this. He was humble. And yet, listen, Christian, Isaiah's humility and awareness of his sin 
is apparently insufficient in the presence of God. Something more than awareness must take place. That's where we find the famous coal of Isaiah, if you will. In verse 6, the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. The angel picks up a coal from the altar of God. What happens at the altar? Well, that's the place where sacrifices are burned up and offered to God to do what? To atone for sin. From this fire does the angel address Isaiah's need. So he was clearly in need beyond mere confession, beyond mere awareness. Let us note then that Isaiah does not prescribe a solution to himself for his sinfulness. Isaiah does not determine to fix himself. He does not. Here's the key, friends. There is forgiveness and atonement only in the action of God. Only in the action of God. Like a leper in the ancient world, there is nothing Isaiah can do to save himself. He is saved by the gracious action of God. Now, this is a great, if not mysterious, salvation story. Set in an ancient time, the setting is both in ancient Judah and in the heavenly throne room of God. Now, the reader might reasonably ask himself, what now? Right? For what purpose has Isaiah been called up into heaven, humbled, broken, rattled to his core, but then providentially, sovereignly cleansed? What's going on here? Why has this happened? Why were his lips anointed with the coal of atonement? Perhaps, we might speculate before reading further, perhaps it's so that he can go preach a great message to bring about a great revival in Israel. I mean, Isaiah has said, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And so figuratively, the whole nation is leprous in their pride like Uzziah. As the king goes, the people go, typically. And so would it not stand to reason that Isaiah was to now return to his people with purified and anointed lips, maybe you might say empowered to bring about reform? We might think that. But to answer the question, for what purpose has Isaiah been called up here? We read it in verses 8 through 13. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So here it comes, right? Go preach, right? Go enact a great salvation. No, verse 9, God says to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. What? Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed that's bizarre right go 
go preach in a way that's going to cause people to fall asleep. <laughs> right? Make their hearts dull, make their eyes heavy. Preachers want to keep their congregations awake, not put them to sleep. What a strange command, but why? Well, Isaiah, because he's humble, he does not ask God why. He simply asks for how long. Now, God grants to Isaiah a why. He says, do this or else they might repent. Or else they might understand and turn and be healed. Now, this is strange, isn't it? God doesn't want his people to repent, to understand, to hear, and to turn? Is this not the God who acted so graciously to save Isaiah with the burning coal? Why not rescue Israel as a nation with this burning coal? Why not empower his preaching to bring about revival? We ask those questions, but Isaiah seems to know better. He just asks, for how long shall I do this? How long, O Lord, verse 11? And God answers, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is Felled. Basically, the Lord says, you will preach this way and the people will respond, or you might say they will not respond this way, until all of Israel is a wasteland, devoid of life. Until, if you will, all the self-willed glory of Uzziah is removed. Well, friends... It is the same. It is the same salvation in you and I. This is a beautiful picture. It's a brutal picture, but it's a beautiful one. For until all of our sinfulness is laid bare before the Lord, until we are broken and undone, shattered to our core, until we are honest with our need, there is no hope for a future. Until all of our self-willed glory is removed. Until we recognize the barrenness of the landscape of our own hearts, our own personhood. Only then, only then, might the promise of restoration and healing come to us. It is this way in salvation. We confess that Jesus is Lord and therefore we confess that everything he said is accurate. And then and only then might we be remade. Well, it's the promise of that being remade that we find in the last bit of Isaiah 6.13. The holy seed, we read, is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. So... Here Israel is figured as an oak tree, cut down by the axe, if you will, of God's holiness. How long? Well, until there's nothing left of the self-will of Uzziah, or you might say the spirit of Uzziah, left in Israel. Healing will come, but the time for healing is not yet. 
the sinfulness of man must be utterly and completely appreciated. It must be seen for what it truly is. The sinfulness of man stands in such gross opposition to the holiness of God. Only in utter devastation is the picture complete. This is what sin brings to God's good creation, and this is the cost. This is the consequence. Utter desolation. The contrast couldn't be clearer. You have the radiant holiness of God, surrounded by the glory of angels. And then you have the desolation in Israel, in sharp contrast. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. Which brings us to point number three, the seriousness of salvation. The seriousness of salvation. And for that, we should turn to Isaiah 52 and the hidden chapter, Isaiah 53. It's often called the hidden chapter because Israel doesn't seem to study it. Many Jews have never read it. It's almost as if it is purposefully avoided by a a spirit of blindness for some providential purpose. Only God knows. But these verses describe what was necessary to to achieve God's salvation of his people. And that is the servant who would come. The servant. So I'll read this for us and we'll make a few observations. Beginning in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard They understand. Who has believed, verse 1 of 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a sobering portion of Scripture thoroughly outlining the nature of the Son in His service to the covenant of redemption. Three things we notice about the servant here. We cannot possibly unpack the whole chapter. It's beautiful. It's incredibly prophetic. It's incredibly sobering. But for our purposes this morning, we are considering again the seriousness of salvation. Well, we note first and foremost that the servant will be high and lifted up. We find that in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up. The holy seed that has come from the stump that was cut down will rise to be a great king. He will be high and lifted up, greater and more noble and more pure than Uzziah could ever imagine being. As Uzziah presumed to be, this one will be high and lifted up. Secondly, we note that the servant is an an agent of salvation. 52.15 reads, He shall sprinkle many nations. He will sprinkle not just one nation, the nation of Israel. He will sprinkle the nation of Israel, but he will sprinkle many nations. In fact, there's an inference here to Gentile kings. That which has not been told to them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who is that but the Gentile nations? So he will sprinkle many nations. Yes, Israel, but not only Israel. Why did the Christ have to suffer in his first coming? Well, God could have reformed the hearts of one generation of Israel. But more than that, the Messiah has come for all the nations of the earth. So the servant is an agent of salvation, not just for Israel, but for all. He will sprinkle as a priest king. Uzziah presumed to be a priest king. This servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 will be a true priest king who sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice. Thirdly, the servant will suffer the horror of the cross. 
that which we read about in chapter 53. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, I would just ask that we see the love of our Savior in this. Do you see his love? Do you see his passion? The cross was a high price to pay to rescue us. Do we see the cost? Do we see the seriousness of salvation? This was not flippant, sentimental business about which Jesus was undertaking. No, this was the serious work of salvation. Dear Christian, we are not participating in mere sentiment this Advent season. We are praising God for his glorious mercy, seen only clearly when we consider his holiness, our sinfulness, and the sobering cost of our salvation. He was lifted up as a sinner, as a leper, as one unclean, so that we lepers might be made clean, that we might come to him and find life and hope. And you might say, friends, that's why the Christ had to suffer in his first coming. Because the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the seriousness of salvation. This is the message we carry. But it is not a message that we can possibly know in and of ourselves. John Calvin begins his Institutes of Christian Religion by saying, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. If we do not know God and we do not know ourselves, we really don't know anything accurately. Well, this Advent season, I pray that we would know God rightly in his holiness. We would know ourselves rightly in our sinfulness so that we might know the message of salvation that we are celebrating and preparing to celebrate in earnest in a week's time at the anniversary, if you will, or the commemoration of the birth of our Savior. Father, may this go forward. Uh, with power and with kindness, with conviction, as these words are heard in whatever setting, in whatever place. May you comfort your people. May you compel them um, to love and good works. But Lord, may we know the story of our salvation rightly as we dwell and focus on your holiness, our sinfulness, and the seriousness of salvation. What a grand story and message we carry with us everywhere we go. Help us, as, as Calvin wrote, help us to know rightly. We love you and we trust you and I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.